Colossians chapter 1. Tonight we'll finish Colossians chapter 1. Paul's perspective on ministry. So it's been a couple weeks since we uh, were last in Colossians. Two weeks ago the Plutes were here. And then last week the young leadership younger leadership group took their place and did a great job. They're still working on a name for that group. I haven't figured it out myself, so I try not to insult. <laughs> I just know they're younger than me, and I'm trying to hand the baton. <laughs> so as we look at Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing to this small church uh, somewhere south of Ephesus, there in Asia Minor, and church was probably planted by Epaphras, and we talked about him uh, there in verse 7, as you heard from uh, our fellow servant Epaphras. So he came from Ephesus, went down there and preached the gospel, and apparently people came to Christ, and so a church was planted. And so Paul, having never met these people, He's writing a letter to them because Epaphras has come to meet him while he's there in Rome imprisoned. It has many of the representatives from the churches that Paul had planted came to visit him there and bring support and encouragement and just a simple update, you know, what's going on in their churches. And then Paul, in turn, could respond by letter to them. And so this is sort of how these epistles came about. Think about it for a moment. Paul is like the Moses of the New Testament. He wrote 14 out of the 28 books, letters, in the New Testament. He was the one born out of due season with a special mission, and he'll mention it in our text here tonight. And so he, uh, just by way of remo- uh, um, reminder here, uh, verses 3 through 8, he com- comments on their Faith in Christ, how they received it, and the fruit that was coming forth from their lives. And, you know, we've, uh, they knew the grace of God. They understood it in truth. When people understand the grace of God, not how, what grace of God, how it's defined, but I mean seeing it lived out, embodied, and experienced on a personal level. That's where the joy comes from. It's where we be, really begin to see God for who he really is. And that was sort of really modeled for them in in the life of Epaphras, really. And then his emphasis to them uh, was keep God first, the preeminence of Christ. If you have Jesus first in your life, everything else will find its order. If you fail to keep Christ first and God preeminent as a believer in your life, then all things will be out of order and your life will be disheveled. You'll not you're just not going to live to the fullest capacity and experience the blessing that God would have for you. Now, some people call that being a fanatic. They don't understand what it means to be a devout follower of Christ if they believe that you're a fanatical. Fanatical means you're, you're, you're a little off the rails, as far as I'm concerned. You know, like the people in the stadiums on Saturdays and Sundays at the football games. They're called fans for a reason. That's short for fanatical. It's how crazy they get. You do that in church, you're crazy. You do that in the stands, well, that's acceptable. Okay, just thought I'd break that up. But if you really love the Lord, 
You don't really care what people think. And if you really love the Lord, you're not going to act weird. And what's weird about loving people, caring for people, doing good deeds for people? <laughs> that I think is pretty, pretty cool myself. Uh, so that's what Paul talks about 9 through uh, 18 there, the preeminence. And then he, talking about the person of Christ. I mean, let's think about this for a minute. Who is Jesus? Oh, well, he's God incarnate, yeah. We just sort of write it off. But think about how fantastic that thought is. That God created everything, and he thought it would be cool. I'm sort of paraphrasing here. That he thought it would be cool to become a human being. <laughs> I just think that's a crazy thought. God would become a human being. Why, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I don't know. But he thought it would be pretty cool. So the Bible talks about, and this is sort of, it's hard to get our minds around the Godhead. You know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, trying to explain the Trinity, first of all, only children can understand the Trinity. I mean, it's just like, you know, you follow me? It's just like, they just accept it. Okay. <laughs> um, but it says in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the arm of the Lord revealed. So we can't comprehend a spirit, but we can comprehend something that's incarnated that looks and acts like we do. And so God revealed himself, and that's why he thought it would be so cool. So he could reveal his nature and his purpose in becoming a man. Is my battery f- faking, uh, fading out? No, I was doing this last night. I just replaced it last night when I was teaching last night. Okay, well, I checked the connection, so maybe that'll help. Okay. Um... The whole idea of, of, of being able to incarnate, to reveal himself. Uh, the Holy Spirit, I mean, you can't really see a spirit when, you know, with your eyes. It's invisible. So, so God just, in a sense, became tangible for us. And so that's really sort of what Paul uh, talks about here. Even though there's that tangibility to Christ, and we see him as a man, he is 100% human nature now. He was never going to give that up. He'll always have that. But that doesn't make him less God, less omnipotent, and all the other attributes now that go with it. Now that Jesus is in his glorified state, he expresses all of the things that the Father can express. All the things that the Holy Spirit can express are still found in Christ. And he is, as it said there, he's the creator. And then last time we got together, we talked about reconciliation. And the, the the power of that, we'll mention a little bit of that again tonight as we finish this here. But uh, moving on to chapter, at the end of the chapter here, verse 24. Now I real rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you. To fulfill the word of God, the mystery, which was hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. And to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works 
in me mightily. There's been a little bit of emphasis the last couple times we've gotten together on the ministry, the priesthood of all believers. And you'll notice in my teaching, when I minister the word, I treat you as though you are in the ministry. Oh, well, I'm just a parishioner. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a Christian. Well, you come to this church long enough, you, you get the idea that I'm pushing this little agenda, so to speak, that you are part of the ministry. Oh, no, I just sit in a chair. I don't, I don't, I'm not really part of the ministry. Wrong. You need to change. That's something, you know, we have this thing like everybody up front is on stage and we're the audience. We observe. Oh, no. That's, that's Hollywood. That's entertainment. No, we are, we, we are the choir that sings to heaven. We're all in this together. We're all servants. And there's this thrust that we need to understand that we, we have a responsibility. We have a job to do. And it, it's not, they're not, all our jobs are not identical, but they're all necessary. And if you don't do your job in the ministry, the ministry will suffer. Somebody, suffer, somebody suffers when somebody doesn't do their job. That's just the way it works out. And you'll see this with Paul here. I think I get this from Paul because that's what the scripture sort of teaches. And so, uh, and the other thing I want to point out here, this whole idea of suffering. In our Western culture, we'll do anything we can to avoid pain. Because when we hear the word suffering, that we equivocate that, you know, that's pain. Avoid pain at all costs. You know, how much I, can I pay you to avoid pain? You know, that type of, we just live that way. Oh, I've got an owie, we'll put a Band-Aid on it. You know, I, I've got a headache, well, I'll just take a p- pill, you know. I mean, we do anything to, to, to mask over, deal with it. You know, aren't you glad God allowed us to feel pain in our body? Because pain tells you there's something wrong. And God uses that so that we make adjustments in our lives to, you know, alleviate that pain. And actually, if we do those things, it actually promotes health and growth. And so we shouldn't look at suffering and pain in that sense as a total negative. It isn't always good, but it's not. It's something that if we have, face it with the right attitude and allow God to, to give us grace, it leads to transformation. That is the truth that people miss. If you will submit to the trial, to the pain, to the suffering with the right attitude and pray that God gives you grace, there's a transformation that will take place in your being. Paul experienced this. This is why he could say, I rejoice in tribulation. We read that and we think he's a little off. You know, (laughs) what's wrong with you? You know, but Paul learned something. And so... Let's just think for a moment here. Our job is to make known the riches of Jesus Christ. Everything that we need to know are found in Christ. Both the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. You want to know what God likes? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. It it's, it's, it's reveals how God looks and thinks about certain things. And not only... Is, does he reveal that? But we have been granted this incredible position. We are in Christ. 
to be in Christ means we've been delivered, as he said earlier in the, in the epistle, delivered from darkness. Some of you grew up in a Christian home. You live sheltered lives. Bless your heart. You don't, your minds are not scarred from you know, worldly activities and you know, the, what the darkness can do to a, pers- a mind and, the, and scar us a, a soul. We who have had a bad past or bad experiences and things are recorded in our minds that we can't go away. We God heals and, and we don't dwell on it. But it's there's you really appreciate that that verse. What we've been delivered from the power of darkness. Satan has no grip on us. He has no authority over us. We are free. Yes, the battle rages, but the war's won. We are free from everything, and we have power over that. Never let the devil lie to you that, you know, you're weak, you're helpless, you're a victim. That's, those are lies. We can live the life we want to live by the grace of God. He's given us that authority in the person of Christ. But think about, that's life here, but how about life afterwards? Our faith teaches us that there's hope. We wait, we live in hope, knowing that when we put off this body, we're going to be in the presence of God. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, more alive now than we, than you think we're alive now, but you wait till you put off this body. It will be like our sensory perceptions will be off the charts. and Our ability to comprehend way into another level. That's the hope we have. But the promise we have is if we walk in Him, we're going to be rooted. Our roots are going to go down deep. We're going to be built up and we're going to become strong in faith. This is, this is why we come to church. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we pray. This is why we exercise our priesthood so that we can be rooted and grounded in the faith and pass on what we've learned to other people and express the hope that we have. I mean, what hope does the world have? What hope does the world have apart from God and the hope that Jesus Christ? I know what it's like to be on the other side and watch a loved one die having no hope without God in this world. And it is not a good feeling. When I looked at my grandfather, for example, in that casket at 15 years old, I'll never see him again. That's it. It's over. You, I could mourn for as long as I want, and it wouldn't change the fact I'll never see him again. It's over. That's how I thought. That's how I looked at death. It was cr- a crushing blow to my soul, to my spirit. That's probably one of the reasons I took a downward spiral morally. I couldn't deal with the grief. I understand people's grief in that regard. It's a hard thing to, to deal with. It's a tough pill to swallow. But we aren't of, are not of that elk at all. We have this great hope, and we shouldn't uh, minimize that hope that we have. So we're walking in Christ. We're rooted and built up because we died with Jesus. We're hidden with him. You're hidden under the protection of God. He's watching over you. Nothing is going to happen to you that first does not come through the filter of his love. These are the promises that we have. You know, where was that? Where were you at, God, when this happened? You know, some people say, well, when I get to heaven, 
<clears throat> I'm going to have a talk with God about this. I can guarantee you won't even be thinking about that when you see God for the first time. It's like, oh, well, I guess it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the route you're going to take. I'm pretty sure that's what I'm taking. And so if Christ is preeminent in creation, in the world, the message Paul's driving home to these Colossian believers is he should be first in your life. And that's what he's wanting to communicate. And then these verses that we've just read, Paul is talking about his willingness to suffer, to endure pain, sorrow, tribulations, all kinds of sufferings, according to verse 24, for Christ's sake. I'm doing this as unto the Lord. Now this can really be discouraging for people. If you're if you're doing what you do in good deeds and you're looking to be rewarded, well, you know, you know, if I do this then everybody's gonna think I'm such a really a nice guy. You know, and, and then, you know, so I hear someone say, Oh wow, did you see what he's doing? He's really a nice guy. And I hear that. Well, you know, wow, that's well, you know what the Bible teaches that's my reward. <laughs> but if I do it and nobody sees God says, yeah, that's okay. I I saw it. That's all that matters. Just keep moving. Got other things to do. We just begin to live our lives that way. It's for Christ's sake. So whether you're thanked, recognized, or honored, doesn't really matter. You're not really doing it for other people. Now, you do it for other people because they're God's children. They're God's created people. And you're doing it as if he were doing it for them, for Christ's sake. You know, I often, you may often say to yourself, I'm going to do it for his sake because I'm surely not going to do it for my sake. I don't really care, right? <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves, right? There are those, those points of time that we just, I've had enough, man, you know. <laughs> he He doesn't see his suffering as, an obligation per se, it just he realizes he lives in a fallen world and that, that it's going to happen. There are people that are antagonistic towards the message. And he looks at it more as an opportunity uh, to, to reveal Christ. And so Paul mentions in other places the sufferings, the contradictions of men. I don't really want to spend any time on this, but we can see this all over the news media. If you want to understand that whole idea of contradiction of men's, you just kind of read, know the, know what's really going on and then read the headlines. Wait, wait, that, no, that's contradictory. That's what we're talking about. You know, some people it's like, are you kidding me? Are you, what reality, what world are you living in, pray tell? I mean, that's not what went on. The contradictions of men can really get under your skin. You're lying. You're making this up, you know. Paul endured that. You know, you, there's nothing you can do when you hear those things, or even if you're involved in it and it's in a personal affront. You just, it's like, shut it down and walk away. Let God deal with it because you're never going to convince people of certain things. The other Uh, suffering that Paul probably is talking about is the tribulation simply put on him by the enemy. You know, when Paul's casting out demons and then there's these seven sons of Sceva in in Acts and they say, you know, hey, we adjure you by the, you know, by the 
but the Jesus that Paul's preaching, come out, you know, and the, and the demon speaks and says, well, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Well, that's what I'm trying to say. They know you. The, the darkness, I, you know, the, the, we hear this thing, you know, well, you have a guardian angel. Some of you probably got three or four the way you live. I mean, you're going to watch you guys are dangerous. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I think we do have guardian angels, but I also think we've been assigned someone from the dark side to watch us. And they, they're the ones that tempt us. They're the one that whispers the whisper in the ear and that kind of thing. But we don't need to worry about that. But they, they, they are trying to do everything they can to disannul our witness, to make us ineffective, to keep, help keep our mouths shut and not talk about the great hope that we have, those kinds of things. There's, there's a spiritual, an unseen realm around us that we need to be cognizant of. And, and we have authority over so these are the sufferings, that, and it's painful. I know, spiritual warfare is not fun. You actually, you're you're into these spiritual battles, and you realize, oh, that's what that is. <laughs> you sort of forget what's going on here. Like that doesn't make any sense, and that doesn't make any sense. And wow. So, tribulation. That's a part. It's a suffering. Again, with the right attitude, uh, God allows it to happen because it doesn't it doesn't destroy us suffering does not destroy us it it actually is strengthening to our souls if we respond to it in the right way and this is key so paul's willing to suffer for christ's sake and actually for the body of christ's sake you know this is an amazing thing paul as an apostle knowing that he received the stewardship from God, knowing that he would suffer great things. Remember in his conversion in Acts 9, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul suffered a lot, and, but he also had tremendous revelations of God's grace. I mean, he, he was shown this mystery that, that God would live inside people. That was the hidden mystery, as we've read here. That God would take up residence inside the believers through the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. But he realized that by enduring these trials from Satan and from false brethren and all the other trials, that being faithful to God, others could experience the reality of what he taught. This is what's so sad is when pastors have moral failures or, they, or people who have been you know, renowned for their faith turn their back on God and walk away. This is so impacting on people. And it, it almost feels like, well, they didn't really believe what they ever were teaching. And that's probably not true. They probably taught the truth, but they, there's just a failure on their part. But Paul was willing to suffer so that grace could be a reality in the church of Jesus Christ. So when you look at your sufferings and your trials, people are watching you. Well, you know, I'm a nobody. No, you are not a nobody. You are somebody that somebody else is watching. And your faith can inspire them to walk, to serve, to endure. I want to re- 
turn to verse 14. And the key word I'm going to mention here, when he's talking about for the sake of the body of Christ. Notice what he says in verse 14. In whom you have re- redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, by your faithfulness and by his faithfulness, people are going to receive the forgiveness of sins because that's what's available in Christ. Verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. His blood provides forgiveness. His cross provides peace. How many people in this world, and especially in our culture, in the Western culture, live without peace? I mean, we're, the, we're a bunch of drug addicts. We can't, we're stressed out. Just give me something. Let's just do something to alleviate the pain. I need some, you know, I got to get, I got to escape, you know. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Do you realize this is how God sees you? Well, you know, I've, got, I've said some things I shouldn't have said today. I thought some thoughts I shouldn't have thought. I did something I shouldn't have done. Well, we all make mistakes. Own it, confess it, and you have what? Forgiveness. Does that, oh, well, that, you think your sin and your failure is going to stop God from regenerating you and sanctifying your life? You think, oh, now he'll never present me before God blameless. <laughs> Sorry. What you cannot gain through moral failure or moral excellence, you cannot lose through moral failure. You didn't earn your salvation. You're not going to lose your salvation through blowing it. You're not going to derail God's process of sanctifying your life because you you screwed up today or yesterday or the one you're going to do tomorrow. It's not relevant in that sense. When, you, when we miss the mark, we just own it and immediately do it. That's the best thing to do. As soon as you blow it, just own it. Think about it. You think you're hiding from God? No. I mean, how close can he be? He's inside you if you're born again. I mean, he's, he's witnessing everything you're thinking and doing. So just deal with it immediately. You know, like when you make a mess, you spill the milk on the floor, it's always best to, you know, deal with it. You leave it for a few days, this is going to be nasty. <laughs> In more ways than one, right? Smells, <laughs> disease, <laughs> whatever. I mean, think in the spiritual sense. The longer, when you mess up, the longer you wait to deal with it, the more chance you have of spiritual infection setting in to even further make you spiritually unhealthy. So, so deal with it. We all, hey, everybody in this room, everybody in the world that's part of the body of Christ has to do the same thing. There are no exceptions. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a priest, or who you are. If you name the name of Christ and you're born again, you got to deal with allowing, with confession and repentance regularly. That's the way it works. No exceptions. Doesn't make you less of a saint because you make a mistake or you blow it or you have faithless moments. Look what he says to present you holy, 
blameless and above reproach. That's the power of sanctification. That's what salvation is all about. I'm justified from my past failures. I'm being delivered from the power of sin. Past sins are forgiven. Present sins, I have power over them. And eventually, I'm going to be removed completely from the presence of sin. That's what glorification is. Wonderful. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. The three phases of salvation. Past, present, and future. God's got it all covered. No excuses. We're all in Christ. But Paul is willing to suffer because he wanted this message and these truths to come to the listeners of the early church, the churches that he planted. And look at Paul's perspective on this ministry. So he has a, pers- he has a perspective on suffering. He's not going to run from it. It's not bad. God, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he embraced that truth. Like, I don't really like the last few days of my life, personally. I had, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an agenda guy. I got a list, and I want to check the boxes regularly, and I want to get them done in a, in a reasonable fashion. And when I don't get those, che- I get discouraged at myself. And sometimes that's self-induced pain. That's just like you're just, re- stop. I have to tell myself, stop. You're just, you know, you're... <laughs> What are you doing to yourself? You know, put, putting certain things, you know, this unreasonable list that you've put together. We, do, we, we pressurize ourselves sometimes. What does God want me to do? What is truly the reasonable thing? So you have to really, you know, sometimes you have to re, re, <laughs> calibrate, so to speak. It's all part of learning. It's all part of personal growth. But in verse 25, he was willing to, to suffer and to serve the body of Christ in suffering, but his, his ministry intent, you just can't miss it. Look, verse 25 says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. This was not something I asked for. This isn't something I made up. And it's the same for you. You didn't make up your job description in the kingdom of God. You, you, you're just some of you are just discovering. Oh, you mean I'm I'm part of the priesthood, mm-hmm. the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Some of you you've never understood that concept. <laughs> I wish you would have told me. Now I'm responsible, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. You think Paul's a little bit overwhelmed with I'm responsible to deliver this ministry of the kingdom that was hidden in the Old Testament? I'm, I'm, I'm responsible to deliver this to the, to the believers in Christ now? That's a heavy mantle. Well, whatever it, your, your yoke is, what did Jesus say about yokes? My yoke is easy and my burden is it fits you perfectly. In fact, Jesus was a carpenter, right? You know what I think he made? One of the things I think he made? I think he made yokes for oxen. I think that was a living illustration from his own life. That carpenter shop just, you know, you bring your oxen to the carpenter and he does the measurements. Okay, because every, every yoke was custom made for that animal. Otherwise, he's going to 
He's going to get some blisters. You're not going to get as much work on him because you're going to injure the guy. And so I think that's true in our sense. The yoke that God has called you to, your ministry as a priest, a kingdom of priests we are, your ministry is perfectly fit for you. The yoke is easy. The burden is light. You're going to enjoy serving God. When you are employed in the gifts that God has given you, and you're serving in those gifts, you're, you're going to experience the greatest fulfillment in life that you could. It's the people who are not doing what they're called to do that, that are discontent and bored and dissatisfied with life. Just come back and take me, Jesus. I just want to go home. You know, that disposition. Well, it, well you know, I want that to happen too. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I want to have, you know, I want to have fun. <laughs> Let's enjoy life here. I mean, and when you're employing yourself in the things that you've been gifted and called in, there's a joy in your life. It's a wonderful experience. So what is your stewardship? And honestly, I've been ministering, you know, as a pastor for quite a while now, and I'm still learning. Okay, what is it? What's next, Lord? You know, because it doesn't just come all at once. Sometimes revelation often comes in broken fragments, a little bit here and a little bit there, kind of like puzzle pieces, and you begin to fit them together like, ooh, yeah, that, oh, okay, now I see what's got. And the older you get and the more obedient you are, the more you understand, the more you receive, the clearer the picture can become of just how God has called you. How do we handle Revelation? Habakkuk 2. God gives you a vision. And I mean by vision, it could could be a real vision. I mean, it's like, what is a vision? A vision of that sort, supernatural vision, is like a dream, but you're fully awake. That's probably the best way to describe it. But you can also have just a a flash of a mental picture in your mind that, you know, I think this is what God wants me to do. Or you just, a vision uh, can be just, this is what is in my heart. I think this is what God wants me to do. It's, you know, this is what the Bible says. God's will is written on our heart. So what's in your, so when somebody asks me, well, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, what's in your heart? What do you want to do? If time and money and all the other issues that may come that you could see as obstacles to your dream. So ask yourself, what is your dream? And now what is the obstacles to that dream? If those are all removed and you could do what's in your heart, what would it be? That very well could be the vision that God has for you to do. Well, that's impossible. Ah, now you're on the right track. Of course it is. You can't, you can't accomplish your mission without God without the filling of His Spirit, without the gifting of His Spirit. You need all those things. And you know what? That also means you need the body of Christ. Paul could not have fulfilled his ministry without the people, the body of Christ, the one to receive his ministry. So, so we're all connected in that regard. And so we have a stewardship. And of course, his was to reveal this mystery previously healed, uh, re- unrevealed and hidden. And so... in. in in ministering, in his ministry, he preached three ways in verse 28, as we close this out. And I think this is the model that we have as people who uh, minister the word. Now, I, also, I really believe this. I believe that the teaching gift is a very uh, 
I think a lot of people in the body of Christ have a teaching gift. And there are people that are gifted as evangelists. And they can just have no problem just telling people about the good news. Teaching is a pretty common gift. Children need to be taught. Parents, you pretty much are a teacher because you have children and you're good. they need to be instructed. You know, not everybody's gifted publicly in that kind of thing. I, we get that. But there's still lots of ways uh, to teach. The idea of teaching here is is to instruct. We get our word... Uh, Didactic, uh, instructive, didasco here is is to instruct, but before, uh, but he says uh, not only to teach but to warn. Now, of course, some of you, and we all get a little fired up sometimes as pastors and preachers. You know, the word just you know it just happens. You just you're, you get full of the Lord and zeal and all. And so when you hear the warnings, we think, oh, he must be yelling at me, you know. But really, what he's talking about here is that we are stressing certain things because you want to uh, people to avoid certain conduct. If you do that, this is like being a parent. You, you warn the little people because you know from your own personal life experience, if they go down that road or they touch this or they do that, it's going to be unnecessary pain and hurt. And you, and you love them. And so you want to point out, no, 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 Johnny. No, we're not. You can't, no, you can't do that. And that's what we're talking about here. The ministry of warning. Think, it of, think of it as pastoral parenting. And when I think of pastoral parenting, that's sort of what I'm doing uh, for this congregation in, in, a, in, a, in a gentle, loving way as a parent would be. But I also keep in mind that as I'm parenting you in that sense, I'm being parented by God. I haven't learned it all. I'm still being taught and instructed. And I'm still being warned. What's the objective? There is a reason behind this. If you really love people, you want them to grow. And this is what he's talking about, that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Perfect, well, you mean has in never sinning? No, that's not what he's talking about. Perfect in the sense of maturity. There's the three stages of spiritual growth mentioned in 1 John. There's the the babes, young in Christ, just getting into the faith. And then there's young men. You are strong in the word and you've overcome the wicked one. You've learned the devices. You know the word and you've overcome the wicked one. You know, you're, you're just not getting the wool pulled over your eyes anymore. We know what the enemy's up to. No, we're not going there. We, have a, we understand the authority we have as believers. You're young men in Christ, spiritually speaking. And then those who, who go on from those stages, is years of walking with the Lord, you know the word, you understand the warfare, you understand people better. You, know, you can see Paul's progression in his own ministry, in his relationship with people. He was kind of harsh on you know, John Paul at the beginning, but then at the end he was, you know, hey man, bring that guy along, I need him. You know, there's a, there was healing that took place. There's that fatherly, loving, gentle spirit that came from Paul. And you could see it, his development in, in his ministry. Galatians was one of his first epistles, and man, does he bring it. Woo! But as he's older with Timothy, that gentle fatherly spirit coming forth. Timothy, my son. You know, just, I love it. Great example to us. But that's the objective. You want, and this is what we do as teachers, we want to see people grow uh, in their faith and be strong in the Lord. So, 
verse 29, as he ends this, he says, to this end we labor, striving according to his working, which works in us mightily. Straining effort. This is like an athletic contest. If you've ever wrestled before, it's three, used to be, and I think it still is, depending on which uh, one you're involved in. It's three two-minute periods if you don't get pinned or if you don't pin the guy. And I'm telling you, you are absolutely thrashed at the end of each period. It's like, because you're, you're giving everything you got to get that guy, and, he's get, and, and then you're resisting his moves. I mean, it's just get you. But this is the idea. Hey, being a Christian is not for, you know, wimps. You know, let's, you got to be strong. You're going to get uh, abused by the world. You've got to be strong. And, and so Paul is engaged in this, this fight, this struggle. He's laboring. Laboring is a sort, is a sort of a, an aspect of pain, suffering. And then, um, with the, but it's with the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's not, oh, what are you, Superman, Paul? No. I'm trusting God. I, I can't do this. I, I need your spirit, God. There's just that complete dependence upon God. Why do we need dependence on God? Well, first of all, when you're depending upon God, then it's according to His plan. That's why I shouldn't get you know, all you know, discouraged and bent on a shape when you know, my plan doesn't come together because I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish on some day and my, my list didn't get all checked off, you know. He just it's according to his working. But the other aspect of that is realize that we are earthen vessels. We are weak. We don't like to admit that, but we are. We're weak in, in several levels. And what happens is that an earthen vessel can gradually leak out. There's attrition there. Just by by just mere keeping your eyes open and living in this world, you're gonna the glory will fade. The presence of God has to be cultivated. And it, the glory goes away, as it will, because of the fallen condition. And the other way that a vessel is weakened is by giving yourself. When you pour, this is what Paul said, that I might be a drink offering poured out upon the church, my brothers and sisters. When, you're, when you have... That high pre that priestly understanding that you are part of the kingdom of priests, you you understand it is your responsibility to pour out yourself, to give of yourself to others. And what did Jesus say about this whole thing about giving? It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is in giving that we receive. You cannot outgive God. You know, that's why I hear this from the Sunday school teachers on occasion. You know, I really got ministered to. I think I got ministered to by this lesson more than the kids did, you know. And I find that as a pastor, too, as I'm giving the word. I, you know, I, I'm drained at the end of a service, generally speaking, but I'm renewed, like, wow, God's grace. And so you, you find that in your activity, and it, and it happens in all of us. This is a reality for everyone, and so this is, again, why I push, why I exhort people to the ministry. Now, some of you, I realize you have jobs, and you've got to put a lot of time and effort into that. But don't ne- neglect 
seeking God to, uh, for understanding on what your stewardship is. And you will be blessed beyond your wildest imaginations when you begin to employ yourself in that stewardship. May God bless you in your search. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your tremendous love and grace. And Lord, thank you for Paul, his example. And we do pray that you'd visit this church in a powerful way, Lord, that you'd provide a building for us to grow in, to move and have our being. We ask that you would, you would perform your special work in raising us up as a witness to this community, Lord. And I know that that part and parcel has to do with people, each and every one, finding their stewardship, finding their job to do. And so I pray for that grace to be upon every one of us, Lord. May great grace be upon our church, Lord. May you be glorified by the working of your Holy Spirit and working through us to reach this world. In Jesus' name, amen.